You're listening to the Fearless Business Podcast. You're in the best place to learn about how to grow a business, get more clients, and make more money without fears and limitations. All while having fun in the process. Robin Waite is the founder of Fearless Business, a business accelerator helping coaches, consultants, and freelancers double their income and more. This is Fearless Business, and this is Robin Waite. So welcome everybody. It's Robin White here, uh, founder of Fearless Business and uh, I've got an extra special. This is quite exciting. We're going live into the Facebook group at the same time as recording this podcast episode and I am super chuffed um, to invite on to the show today Andrew Priestley who is a multiple best-selling author and international business coach uh, doing lots of work around the money side of things as well which I'm excited to kind of dig into Uh, we're going to learn a little bit about Andrew's um, advertising background so hello and welcome to the show Andrew Hi, Rowan. How are you, mate? I'm really well, thank you. Um, so, uh, mate, honestly, I'm, I'm pumped to have you here uh, on the show. So I, I know that you've got some amazing uh, gold that you're going to be um, helping the various different coaches, consultants, and freelancers we've got watching this uh, and listening to this. Um, so so let's, let's dive in. Um, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go straight, straight in with a, a question about your... You, you spend a lot of time working in advertising. So talk, talk to us about the, your, your advertising days. Yeah, um, it, the way I got started in advertising was I I used to run an entertainment like a a, a lifestyle magazine, right? And um, uh, it was incredibly successful. It just took off like you wouldn't believe. Um, but essentially, what I was doing, I was working with uh, the nightclub hospitality industry, which in those days was basically where money, drugs, prostitution, money laundering was taking place. And I had this crisis of values. Do I really want to be associated with that industry? Right? And um, I actually made the decision to shut that business down. It was very successful. Right. Um, but um, that must have been a really tough decision. Like t- tell us, tell us a little bit more about that. Like what was going on in your sort of, how did you feel when you were going through that process? It's, it's, it's funny because I st- I'd, I'd actually, I started life as a school teacher, right? And I'd racked up 10 years and I took long service leave. And I, prior to that, because I was surfing and I was also playing in a music band, I actually started up a newspaper, a surfing newspaper and a music newspaper. And when I took long service leave, I actually started a lifestyle paper and I'd seen Time Out in London and also the publications in Los Angeles and thought, I, Australia doesn't have this. So I started it. <laughs> I was actually in competition with Rupert Murdoch with the Brisbane Career Mail, right? Um, and, and as I say, just so you know, Rupert won, right? Um, <laughs> 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 um, but um, but really what, what happened was it was – what's worse than failing in business? That's, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't know, failing, failing in your relationships, life? Yeah, um, Succeeding in business can be worse than failing in business, right? Yeah. Because I had a business that succeeded unbelievably, right? Um, but it was taking – I was doing 12 to 16-hour days, seven days a week. And so it, it started to impact things like marriage, family, health, right? Um, after six months, I had – I had a, I got to a point, Ron, where I was waking up thinking about the business. I was going to bed thinking about the business. I was dreaming about the business, and I thought, oh, another day. I've got to get up and do this again, right, in another few hours, right? And I had staff and 
But on top of that, I had I think the the clinch point for me was was I I got asked to go in to see somebody at a nightclub, right? Big big contract, right? And I got invited to come in at two o'clock to do this deal, and I went into the city on a stinking hot day. Had to walk twelve blocks because I couldn't get a car park near the venue. Got to the venue, pressed the button, nobody's there. So I ring up and I say, "Where are you guys?" And they said, "No, no, two a.m." Not 2 p.m., 2 a.m., right? Right. <laughs> so I went home and I told my wife about that and she said, you're an idiot. You know, we, what are we doing? You know, and uh, yeah, but we need the money and yeah, but you're, you're foolish. These people are criminals. I had this big argument and uh, I jumped in the car and I had to, to get into town, I had to cross this massive long bridge, massive long bridge. And it was about one o'clock in the morning. And I'm, you know, when you're driving along and you're thinking, oh, Andrew, you're an idiot. What are you doing? What on earth are you doing, right? This is crazy. And so I slowed the car down, did a U-turn, and I'm going home, you know. And as I'm driving home, yeah, but think of the money, that money, that's a big, big contract. So I did another U-turn. Yeah, but <laughs> you're arguing with your wife and your kids. And and so I did another U-turn, but think of the money, and I went round, I think, about Seven times. You could have done with a roundabout at that time. You could have just done a few laps of, you know. (laughs) Actually, that time of night, no, I was on the bridge. There was no traffic, right? It was a two-lane bridge. But look, in the end, Rob, and I pulled the car over. I was that conflicted. And I think it was one of those things where you you come to a crossroad with your values, right? Yeah. I was that conflicted. I pulled the car over. I got out of the car. I think I wept for about 40 minutes. Oh, man. I just sat there weeping. I was that confused about what I did. And... You know, and you know that that thing where your head's going blah blah blah, and then you get excited, and then you get sad, and up and down, and then eventually I said, "This, you know, this is crazy." My wife's right. This is just look at your health, look at your relationship. So I went home. Right? Yeah. And then over about a period of about two weeks, I shut the business down, and I had to tell staff I'm shutting the business down. I had to find out who my suppliers were. I had money that I borrowed from the bank to to grow the business while well, I ended up paying out all debts so nobody had debts. I had no any money to anybody. And um, But I, I didn't even think about it. Shutting it down was just the thing to do, right? It was the right thing to do for me. Values, it was totally in conflict with the values. But the thing, to answer your question, what made that, what made that magazine work was we sold newspaper advertising and I was really good at writing newspaper ads. Uh, and I put that back to the fact that I started, I cut my teeth in advertising prior to 1985. Now, why I say 1985 or 84, actually, 1984, because it's the George Orwell book, right? Yeah. Um, you know what happened on July the 4th, 1984, don't you? You might have to remind me. I might be showing my, my age here, but I was three then, so. Okay, the Apple Mac. Ah, Okay. Right, the Apple Mac got launched at the Super Bowl, right? No way. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they did a big – if you look at it, it's a great campaign about uh, based on George Orwell where a runner comes in and smashes the, 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 P, the, the PC dummies and all that sort of stuff, right? But a mate of mine, I was – prior to that, we used to do typesetting and hot metal typesetting and you would get bromide galleys and you would lay newspapers out with, with a razor blade and, and a, you know, a, a – you know, a, a, a printer's ruler and a razor blade, right? So you had your printer's ruler yeah. still got it and a razor blade. And your you know, your your M and Pika charts and 
which I've still got my M, my M, M ruler for measuring M's and peakers and stuff. And um, mate said, come and have a look at this. And that morning I'd been in a dark room typesetting, trying to get curvy writing. And the way you did it was you bromided the, the, the headline, then you got some lead blocks and you twisted it until you got a bend in it, and then you took a photo of it, right? And he said, have a look at this. And the whole thing came out in less than a second and a half. No way. Yeah. And I looked at it and I said, I said to him, because I remember it, that's the death of hot metal. Yeah. <laughs> it's the death of typesetting, right? But see, what, what we used to do prior to 1985 is we would write our stories on, um, we, would, we would write an ad, right? So you'd, you'd, you'd go and write your copy. And I, I, was, I was trained in long copy ads. So you'd write your, your ad on a with a typewriter, remember them? Yep. On a piece of A5, right? And you would type it in and you would then give it to the creative who would then take a red pencil and go all, the, all through your copy, right? So you'd get back, you know, ticks, blah, blah, blah. You'd get back a whole lot of stuff, right? And the reason we did that, it was you had to get the words right let me, let me be clear. You had to get the message right, right? The value proposition, the, the message, the narrative right, because it was so expensive to go back and get it reset if you made a mistake, right? Yeah. That's why creatives were really, really important. They would read it and copywriters were just unbelievable. So I grew up in I, – I, I cut my teeth in that era when, when there were actual copywriters and creatives where the, the premium was on the words, was on the message, right? And then desktop publishing – change that and so we got the words right then we made it look good well desktop publishing reverse that let's make it look good and worry about the words later and i still see that today but the way we buy is we buy on the message then the pictures now we know a picture's worth a thousand words yeah but once you got that then you read the copy so do you think the whole desktop publishing side of things has been actually been quite detrimental to the advertising industry then Totally, totally different. Yeah, because I can, I, I can see this. I'll give you an example of that. Uh, I was reading some copy the other day for a law firm and I said, I guarantee you uh, somewhere between 19 and 24-year-old wrote this copy because they've never bought anything of value. They've never sold anything of value. They've never actually closed a deal of this size before and they're writing copy the way they think it should be done instead of how it's actually done. Right, and, the, yeah. and some law firm paid a lot of money to a marketing company for that copy, and they go, mm, it's, uh, but they don't even know either because they've all come through this pictures in words thing. So, yeah, but do you, but, do you uh, think that's why? Because I think there's a feeling at the moment that, that marketing is really, really hard in the modern modern era of running a business. Do you think that that's got something to do with it? No, it's not. Marketing's not hard, and it never has been hard, right? And it never will be hard. Marketing will never be hard. You've got to be clear on this. The way you do it is hard. That's the big distinction, right? Yeah. The way people do it is hard, right? Uh, you know, if I try and if I try and um, change change a wheel with a can opener, it's going to be bloody hard. Yeah. Right. If I've got a tire jack, no problem. And the same thing, you know, good writing, there's a structure to that. Writing hasn't changed in how many years, right, centuries, right? Uh, we still follow, um, the, you know, the, the, the structure of narrative that was laid down way back 2,000 years ago. You know, the Greeks put on plays. They knew how to put on a good play because they knew the structure of the narrative and that hasn't changed. So we've still got that. Um, so some, So marketing principles haven't really changed. The tools have changed. 
But I mean, I see what's happening on, say, LinkedIn and Facebook now. I mean, look, look at this. Look at this. Did you grow up in an age when you would watch TV and there'd be adverti- a- 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 TV commercials during your favourite show? Yeah. What, what happened when the TV commercials came on? Uh, go make a cup of tea. Well, I didn't. Mum would go make a cup of tea or something like that. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. if it's a really good story, you'd say, come on, come on, come on. Yeah. Um, and then they had, you could watch the whole thing. So the thing about, say, the government TV stations, you'd see the whole thing with no, with no interruptions, right? Yeah. Um, but I grew up in a time where we would, you know, my brother had foam bricks and he would throw a foam brick at the TV when the ad came <laughs> <laughs> Make a game of it. That's a great That's idea. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. Foam bricks, right? <laughs> and, then, and then you move forward, like, you know, my, my girls are five and three, and it's just yeah. like, Daddy, can I watch Peppa Pig? And we've got, already got Peppa Pig queued up on the Skybox. That's it, yeah. So we can, and it, and it yeah. just, it just r- rotates through all of the oh. – and there's, st- there's still ads and things like that, but the, we just, we're like, oh, the girls are yeah. as interested yeah, in the ads. You can freeze them or whatever it is, but, but yeah. they don't come through. Now, so what you've got – what I see now on things like LinkedIn particularly and on Facebook especially, right, if I said I'm going to pay to watch wall-to-wall ads, right, you'd go, no way, because we did that with TV. Let's – you know, I love – look – Spotify, if you haven't got the, um, if you don't have the, the, the subscriber thing, you've got ads every half hour, right? Yeah. You've been listening to something, then comes up an ad. You don't want to hear it. You know, you've been listening to Mendelssohn, and suddenly up comes up Stormzy, right? An ad for Stormzy's new album or whatever it is, right? I'm cool. <laughs> <laughs> you are, Andrew. Um, yeah, so here's where I'm going with it, right? Um, what I see is people using really old school marketing on modern tools and the marketing didn't work when it was in print and when it didn't work in radio, electronic, when we did print radio, radio TV. Uh, it didn't work then. Why would they say, I'm just going to take that and put it on a new medium which might be digital you know, online, blah, blah, blah. The principles don't, haven't changed. Yeah. I, I tell you what, I managed to get hold of a copy and it, it's, it's a bit like um, uh, finding a hoard of gold coins, but breakthrough advertising. Oh, yeah. Uh, Eugene Schwartz. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Can't, you can't get it on Amazon anymore. It's, I had to, there's a, a company called Titans Marketing who, um, in America who I had to buy it through. And it's only because Eugene Schwartz's um, wife said that I think maybe she's, um, maybe her pension's kicked in or something. She had to earn some extra cash. So they sell it for $125 and it was $30 or something to ship it over. But what I found interesting was they talk about the five different um, stages of the buying journey. You know, the, the, yeah. the, the being problem unaware, problem aware, but solution unaware, solution yeah. aware, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. The, bit, the bit I found the most interesting was this, this notion before, that comes before that where, and, and I think this is where the breakdown is. The, 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 the first part of it is you have to, it's obvious, know, you, know who your target market is, but that target market needs to be broad, but they need to have a collective desire. Yeah, yeah. And I think the thing that most modern marketers are, are missing is the fact that they expect they just put something out on the internet and it will automatically find that group of people who have that collective desire. And they don't want to put in the, the hard yards in order to build that audience in the first place. Oh. And so this whole process of like trying to speed marketing up is the thing which is fundamentally breaking it at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. There's, there's still a customer journey. You've still got to go through the five different stages of, of the buying journey. Yeah. 
in order to, before you hand over your cash to somebody, because you still got to build up the trust and things like that. And, and I think people are just, um, it, it's like that typical, like they're, they're getting three feet from gold with their marketing campaigns. It's not giving them immediate like results and they just give up and move on to the next one because you can, it's too easy. Oh, it, it, and then, and look, things are different in a sense, like uh, Stephen K. Scott is a great, a great guy to, to go chase his books up. Anything by Stephen K. Scott is really good. Mentored by a millionaire, right? Yeah. And this is the guy who's famous for um, infomercials, right? So he's $6 billion man on infomercials, right? But he did it at a time when you were buying airtime. Right? And he says, I wish YouTube had been around then Right, he said, because you can do the same thing. You can put out a two-minute commercial or a ten-minute commercial if you want now at no cost. You can go live and do a do a at, at zero cost, right? Um, however, it was going on to one mass media. There are only four channels when he was doing it. Now we've got millions of channels. So, so again, the targeting thing is really important. But what hasn't changed is that I see people today who waste so much money where they fire off all guns blazing, they do a cannonball shot on their marketing, nothing was tested. Yeah. They didn't test propositions, headlines, nothing. And the great thing is, you know, you can test propositions on Twitter, on Instagram. You can test, 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 A, B, split test to the cows come until you find it, but you've got to be patient. I mean, that hasn't changed. I remember running ads in newspapers when we – what I learned from doing the hospitality industry is I knew how to write ads and I knew how to construct ads that people would read and I knew how to identify what propositions were. So I created a family-friendly business so I could drop my kids at school, pick them up after school and do the advertising agency in the middle. That got bought out by a mate and I then became an account exec for growing other agencies. That's, that was the history. Yeah. Talk but to it, us about that, actually, because that must have been a really um, sort of interesting time to be helping businesses to grow as well. So the, the, you've done the Ju- July the 4th, 1984 launch of the yeah. MacBook. You've, you've, you've now migrated into sort of um, growing your own business to now growing other people's businesses. So yeah. talk, talk to us about that sort of period. Well, it was, it was again, see, here's a principle that hasn't changed. Uh, when I, when I uh, merged my agency with someone else's agency, right, I, I left that because they had a really good game going, right, and I got headhunted into another role anyway and a, on a really good pay. It was one of those offers where, shoot, I don't have to think about running a business. Someone's going to pay me a, a bunch of cash, give me a car and put me in charge of a marketing, a, a sales department, right? But um, It fits quite nicely with the lifestyle of having a young family as well in a way totally, like totally family friendly, yeah. I, i'll be yeah. honest like as a having five and three year olds like running around trying to grow a business it's it's busy <laughs> but it's, it is and it's a game too where you say how do i want to play this game right how do i want yeah. to do it um but uh you know the thing that didn't change was that i knew how to actually target people because not everybody's a customer so for example you and i were chatting before about business statistics in the UK. And I get a lot of my research, whatever country I'm working in, I always go to the house of uh, the um, office of statistics or the bureau of statistics, wherever it is. And I, and I tell you what, uh, and in the UK, particularly you get great Intel. If you go to any bank and go to their business pages and read what they're saying about business and what they say is good, you'll pick up a lot of great Intel on what's happening in UK businesses just by reading banking platforms. Right. But the government one, um, most definitely they'll give you that, that sort of idea. So, so, 
I knew that I wanted to target a certain type of client and it was clients who could afford us and could afford to implement what we were suggesting. So the sales guys were going out and doing little low-hanging fruit type stuff, but there was no profit in it, no growth in that business. And so this one agency I, I went to work with, they were turning over 350000 and their accountant said, look, on a good day, if we do everything right, we'll, we'll hit half a million this year, right? And uh, I my, my question was, look, if I can do better than half a million what's my commission if I can do better than half a million? And <laughs> I said, what's the catch? <laughs> what's the catch? I said, well, there is no catch. I just get paid for exceeding the targets you give me, but you make more money, right? Um, oh, we don't, don't know about that. I said, do you want to grow this business or not, right? So they said, well, what do you know? I said, well, that's why you've hired me because of what I know, right? Otherwise, you do it yourself, right? Otherwise, you don't need me, right? So yeah. uh, uh, anyway, we, we eventually what the deal was cut was I took, a, I took a decrease in pay of 10 grand and they put my target up 100 grand to 600,000, right? Yeah. So I was getting paid 50 grand with a target of half a mil, so 10 times my salary, right? Yeah. So they put it down to 40 and put my target up to 600,000 and then we signed off on it, right? And the first year I did 1.8 million. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So, so, uh, and can and you I, share what your can you share what your commission was? It was about 140 something. Wow. Yeah, nice. Yeah. So, um, so it was about 100 in commission and and 40 the 40 the base salary, right? It was about yeah. that. But but then the the owner of the business, his wife said, "That's not fair. You can't earn more than my husband." I said, "Well, I did." And no, that's not fair. You know, employees aren't supposed to earn more than their husband, uh, the owner of the business. I said, well, yeah. And she said, no, 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 that's not right. You know, well, you can't have you working here doing that. And I said, well, look, ask your accountant. And whatever he or she says, I'll abide by, right? And the accountant said, pay him. Quite, yeah. I mean, you've, you've, you've trebled, quadrupled that turnover. Yeah, but you she know. said, but it's not fair. We didn't take as much. And he said, well, you did because you bought a house and you bought a car and you've actually spent his commission. That's it. Do you know what's, um, I, I, what I love about that is you're, you're one of those guys who I always get a sense of like you'll put your money where your mouth is. Yeah. Like, cause you, you understand like fundamentally that when you run a coaching consultancy business, that yep. the one thing you need to focus on, and this is, I think one of the biggest mistakes in our industry that, pe- that, that other coaches make is that your focus is on the client and growing the client's business yep. 100%. Yep. The, and I, I think you're like a very a, a humble guy in that respect. Like, you know, you know, your value, you know, your worth, but you put the client first and you're willing to just, just get paid on results. Yeah, and, that, uh, and that is where the money is at as a, as a good coach or a good consultant, in my opinion. And I think, I think, you know, like I hung out with Jay Abraham a couple of times, which was amazing. And I said, Jay, what, what, out of your toolkit, um, it's really weird. It's really weird hanging out with someone who you've got, you know, what do they say? You should never meet your heroes, right? Yeah. Um, but I hung out with Jay. I said, Jay, what's, what is the secret? If you could have one thing in your toolkit, what is it that you've learned out of this whole thing? He said, most people don't know how to articulate their value. 
Right? Yeah. He said, that's why they earn less than they, because they just, he said, it's all about perceived value. And most people do not know how to articulate value at all, right? And he's a, he's a master of the narrative, the, the value narrative, right? Um, but uh, when I was running the ad agency, for example, you know, like I, I learned a really valuable lesson. I once did a campaign for a, like a Whole Foods uh, shopping uh, supermarket, right? Uh, natural foods. Yeah. Right? And it was textbook perfect. And I remember John and I had a coffee and I, and we'd run the campaign and he came back to me and he said, uh, I said, what do you think, John? He said, I, I really liked your campaign. And I'm looking for, I loved your campaign. He said, oh, yeah, it's good. It was, it, it was sort of like vanilla response. And I'm saying, and he said, I said, what didn't you like about it? He said, well, he said, you know, he said, you didn't really come into my shopping, into my business and have a look at what we do in there. You sort of based it on conversations you had with me, which is great because it all worked, but I don't think you got me. And so I went back and I spent time in his business and just stacked shelves and met customers and stuff like that and went back. And the thing he taught me was you got to put you got to put the customer's shoes on and see it from their perspective always, right? Yeah. And so I did another campaign for him and I, I loved it, right? And when he came back, he said, I love this campaign. It's really, really good. You've really got the heart of what we're about. But, you know, we got a four times result for him, right? And when I do coaching, for example, uh, a lot of – I have you seen these people say get paid what you're worth, right? And yeah. you get big money. And I'm not allergic to money, you know. I've written books on money, but I'm not allergic to money. But um, uh People say you can charge whatever you want. I know Jay Abraham at the time was charging three and a half grand an hour for US back in the 90s, right, which is massive amounts of money, right? Yeah. And I said, how do you charge that much? And he said, well, he said, it's not what I charge. It says what I make for my clients. He could do in an hour what most people would take a year to do because he just would see where the money was and turn the money tap on. But, again, his, his approach was – he wouldn't take on a client unless he knew how he was going to leverage that client's business. Yeah. Unless he could see, here's how I can get at least a 10 times result on, on, on that. So when I meet with clients, I ask a lot of questions where I say, where can I leverage this, this client's relationship here? How can I actually get a four, at least a four times return on investment? So if they spend a thousand pounds with me, they're making four grand back at least. And so yeah. what, where it goes wrong with a lot of coaches is they say, I, I charge two fifty an hour and, but the proposition to the client is, well, I'm just paying 250 bucks for an hour of time. Yeah. Well, you, intru- you introduced me to like a really in- interesting concept and we had a, a conversation, what was it, probably about four weeks ago. Um, and you introduced me to this concept of being able to articulate your value. And I've been able to, um, you know, help my clients understand that better. Yeah. But um, it made me start to do a bit of digging around all of the clients I've worked with over the last three years. Yeah. Uh, since I opened up the coaching coaching practice. And so I've had um, uh, about just over 300 people complete my assessment form. So it's just a basic assessment form. It's a 20-point question questionnaire, yep. like your mother-in-law sort of thing. Plus, I ask a couple of pointy questions about turnover and ideal turnover and things like that. And what, what was interesting, what came back, when I looked at the average turnover that most coaches and consultants, so we had the conversation, you were like, well, actually, you know, Rob, what, what, what is it that brings all of those coaches and consultants together that you work with? And um, the conclusion that, that you helped me come to was that, well, they're all super bright people that they, um, you know, get amazing results for their clients. 
but they have these really high hourly rates, but they're not getting busy for 160 hours a month. Okay. And what that means is then they're just um, busy fools rushing around all the time, trying to market themselves and just, and I actually, the, the actual number, this, this is really fascinating, Andrew. So I've got some stats for you, right? So I, I took all of the turnovers that they put in their monthly turnovers out of the 300 plus assessment forms and did an average and the average came back. The average coach or consultant earns um, £1,960 a month. That's less than the national average wage in the UK. Most coaching consultants 1, will be better off. £1,960. Per, per calendar month. Per calendar month. Okay. Shoot. Shoot. The, the national average wage in the UK, £26,000. So they're yes. earning, the average coach consultant is earning less than the national average wage. wage. Yeah. I think so the national living wage now is 27000 Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it, it's yeah. daft, isn't it? And you kind of, I mean, I, I know I get why. All of these coaches and consultants do what they do because they love what they're doing. They love the results. They love being in the game. But the thing I think the distinction for me was um, when you helped me work that out and I've looked at, we've got the data now. 23,000. Yeah. It sucks, man. It's, it's, yeah, 20, it's, it's 20, shocking. 23,520. Yeah. So, so, so what it, what it made me realize was um, that, and I talked about this on another podcast episode that um most, most small business owners, they make decisions based on their current circumstances. So if they're cash strapped, do you think they're going to be making good decisions? You Probably can't. not. You no. can't. It activates a different part of your brain easily. If you're, if you're really in survival mode, you can't think straight anyway. That's it. You're not in so, create space. No. So, so, then, so now when I go and I'm, I'm a coach and I'm, I'm earning £23,500 a year, £2,000 a month, just I'm struggling to get by. You know, I'm just getting by and it's, yeah. it's survival mode yeah. and, and I'm probably A, going to be making poor decisions. But when I go and pitch a client, okay, I'm going to be desperate to get that client. Yep. Yep. You know, and do we think that that, that relationship is how, how one-sided do we think that relationship is going to be? Cause if I'm going there pitching and it's, it's all about me, <laughs> I've got to get this sale. I've got to get this sale. And you yeah. know, the, the chimp is there like, jabbering away you've got to get the sale otherwise you can't pay your mortgage you've got to get the sale yeah. like that that just set for me sets the whole uh, coach client relationship off really badly yeah we'll see and the client senses that yeah see and, and, and survival mode's all about get mode it's all about get take it's not about value create deliver mode it's they, they get that right look you know you, you talk about the chimp really quickly real sidebar i wrote a book called the money chimp right and the money chimp's been in and out of the top uk top 20 uk books since 2016 but there's a big thing in there one of the principles it, it's really spend less save more get out of debt faster right yeah and Let's take the saving part. Um, and I'm not alone on this. There's a lot of really good people talking about saving at the moment. Um, to save money, you've got to know what you're earning and you've got to know how much you can save. So you've got to know what your overheads are and what's left is your discretionary money and out of that you save some, right? That's one way to do it. You work with what, what's my existing salary, what could I save, right? And the goal there has always been save 10%. But the first goal that you should ever have in business right, is figure out what your overheads are and stockpile three to six months worth of overheads in as a liquidity cushion or as a financial buffer and have that sitting there so that when you rock up to a client and say, I want blah, 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 right, you're not coming from that point of desperation. I know I've got plenty of money. 
right? I'm not coming. I'm not coming at you with "I need your money." I've, I've, hey, I don't need your money. I got money, right? You actually need the money, not me. Well, you, um, I can, I can do this because we've got video. But you taught me a very valuable lesson in one of the first times I ever met you, Andrew, uh, through well, through one of Dan's events actually. So your yeah. son Dan Priestley, he's obviously got several books out as well and things like that. But through Dan. And uh, I remember one of the things you said on one of your his, workshops. His books are better than nine, by the way. <laughs> well, okay. it's questionable. I don't know. But uh, they, they, they both carry an enormous amount of value. But one of the things you said was make sure that you carry your, your day rate in your... Yep. In your yep. wallet. Yep. Now, I, I, I've, I've got, I, I just kind of carry a few of these around. It's not my day rate. I earn more than two hundred pounds a day, thankfully now. Yep. But, um, yep. but I carry these around and I get them out. And I, I also, um, some people may think this is crass, but I get my five-year-old as well on the drive to school. I'll, I'll get her to get these out of my wallet and hold on to them, and we talk about money. Yeah. And I think there's some really invaluable lessons about just understanding the basic fundamental economics of running either, either a, your personal income, household income, or your business income that yeah. people are missing a trick. Yeah. And the way I look at it, um, or what, what this process, because I know this is something you teach in the money chimp as well. Yeah. So what this process has done for me and it's made me realize that these aren't really that much different to fivers. Okay. Five pound notes. Like there's still bits of paper with numbers and letters and, bit of ink on it right so but it's the value obviously that we place on the money and it's actually what your brain how your brain sees that yeah it's our it's our, it's our perception there is a of difference like, between a five pound note i'll swap that for for four or five pound notes if you like well we could do that i don't think i'd be better off but you know no but you get <laughs> the idea but your brain, your, sorry continue the thought i interrupted yeah. no so so it's um so what was interesting for me is like these make me feel good yeah these make me feel better about myself, not because I'm showing off or I'm, you know, bigger ego or anything like yeah. that because, hey, look yeah. at me, money bags. Yeah. I get these out. They're, they're a bit more rare than the fivers, but they make me feel good. And I always think about like when, when I'm pitching my products to a, a client and they've, they've finally understood the value, they can see the business version of these sat in front of them and, and they can see that that investment, like it's probably more you and i are probably more expensive and jay abraham certainly more expensive than the average coach or consultant out there right but people thank me when they sign up to my program as they probably do with you as well because they get that it's a really great opportunity it makes them feel good to make that investment yeah yeah and, and you can't get that value proposition across to somebody if you're there going give me your money give me your money give me your money because yeah. it's going to make them feel dirty yeah, but you've also got to flip a switch in the, in the in the mind of your target client, and let's stay let's not deviate from that target client, right? Yeah, I know I know people who are great coaches, and they will go after people who they can't help. But, you know, look, my criteria for clients is I like them, I must like them, right? I, I, yeah. I must be aligned to what they're doing. I can't. I'm not going to. I'm not going to coach a, an arms dealer, right? Or a criminal. why not? God, look at yeah, you with yeah. your moral standards yeah, there, Andrew. Yeah, yeah. But I like them. Um, I can get a great result for them. Yep. Right? They can afford me. Right? Um, they can afford to implement what I'm telling them. And they refer. Now, sometimes what coaches will do is they'll pick people who they like them. They can get a great result. They can't afford you. What can't afford to implement what you're saying and won't implement what you're saying they're looking for a blueprint to a magic one where the magic result just turns up and i just sit here passively right yeah. right uh, and they won't refer what well, and the people they do refer are people who like themselves who've got no money 
won't afford to implement stuff, complain when it doesn't work because they didn't lean in. And, you know, I know with my clients, for example, uh, if they're having a great if they're having a great result, they'll say, oh, geez, I'm really good at what I'm doing. If they're having a crap result, Andrew Priestley sucks as a coach. They won't say, you know what, Andrew's a great coach, but he, I didn't do what he said. Yeah. No one's ever going to own up to that, right? It's always going to be the coach's fault. So you've got to screen that on the front end. Now, most coaches I talk to don't do anything where they filter clients to start with. And they take on anything with a pulse because they're frightened to niche down and target, right? They're frightened to say, uh, we know from Bureau of Statistics, right, uh, the sweet spot is are you doing over 300000 or not? That's where a lot of money in the UK is made, between the 300000 and $2 million mark. If you're looking at clients you've got in with there, you're going to make money as a coach. Can you go a bit deeper on that? Because that, that's quite an interesting sort of way of looking at it. Yeah, well, well, again, you've got, you know, everything I do is based on not what I've made up. It's based on, and same with Dan, you know, Dan's, Dan with Dent, right? He, he, we look at where we're getting our information from and, and we're looking at the landscape of, you know, the, uh, what's happening in the UK economically, the way that it's reported to the Houses of Parliament, right? So if you think about it, if you, if you work on this basis, okay, you've got, um, basically uh, 75% of all businesses in the UK have incomes less than 300000 Yep. Right? Of which 80% of those are below the VAT threshold. So that's a massive number of businesses don't earn the VAT, even earn the VAT, right? Yeah. So, so, yeah, but, but it, the government, so when I look at the government, the government... What's the goal of business? The role of business. The goal. The goal oh, the goal of, of business. Well, the, the for the individual business owners to make money, but for the government is to make tax. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So a lot of people confuse. A lot of coaches, right, don't like the money thing. I was always taught money is is ninety five percent sales, five percent coaching, and most coaches do it as ninety five percent coaching, five percent sales. So they get it. They have it backwards. See, they don't see they're running a business. That's the first thing. And then they target clients who are down in this space here who can't afford them and can't afford to implement what they're saying. However, when you get in that uh, 300,000 to 2 million space, right, invariably they'll have between 3 and 20 staff. Underneath that, they've got less than 3 staff. In fact, the average business owner down here is 1.4 staff. Okay. And they're splitting their time between delivery office and whatever and they've got no time for personal development or business development and and then they say this should just instantly work that's what's wrong with internet marketing and i see a lot of that is people yeah. just think you're building a blueprint for a magic wand come in and do it to me do it for me i have no idea what you're going to do but just make sure it works and when it doesn't then they go oh, i wasted oops wasted my money again right yeah but, but your, the best clients for most coaches will live in between 300,000 and 2 million. Now, you've got to know how to talk to these people and what they, what's of importance to them. My hourly rate, who cares about your hourly rate? I could charge you a million, million bucks. If I make you 10 million, do you care? That's it. You, don't, you know, I've got a client in the States. You know, uh, conservatively in three months, I've probably added about 12 million to his bottom line, right? conservatively yeah um just because 
it's I know where to look. I know what what I know how to. Like you, you've got your questionnaire. You sort of say, okay, this is where where we can tweak, right? Yeah. But most most coaches don't are frightened to play up in here and go do some research in there, right? Um, and they're certainly not going to cope. So that's that's twenty percent of businesses in the UK have revenues between three hundred thousand and two mil, right? Yeah. But look at what happens between two and seven mil. It drops off to four percent. So there's a massive drop off of businesses here because it's so tough through here. Yeah. And I coach a lot of companies in this two to seven mil space and they really need, it's all about leadership and strategy through there, right? Down here, it's about biz dev and growing your business, but through here, it's leadership and strategy and it's a mental game because it's so mentally tough in here. You know, guys at the two mil mark say, I, I long for those days when I could go and meet a mate for lunch and have a beer or go play golf. I wake up in the morning thinking about the business. I go to sleep thinking about the business. All I do is talk about freaking business. It's so freaking tough in that space, which is why there's so few of them. And this space here is 1%. So it really, really drops right off, right? So it's actually the inverse of that. Yeah. So we've got a lot of businesses here, right? But I see most, most coaches can't articulate the value. They're playing down here. Safe. It's comfortable. It's, well, it's, it's in the space think, which they fill. Yeah, the, yeah, but it's, it's actually harder to play down here. Yeah. Sub 85, it's really, really hard to play. It's a lot easier once you've VAT registered for a start off, right? So Andrew offered a huge amount of value during the latest podcast episode uh, that we had to break it up into two parts. So make sure that you go and check out the next episode of the Fearless Business Podcast, where we pick up the conversation with Andrew again, talking about the mindset that it takes to grow from post VAT threshold up to seven, eight figures and beyond.